Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. It is a good day. This is a day when we celebrate fathers. And it is also a day when I have a video to share with you. And the video kind of comes out of this Father's Day idea. It has a bunch of children in it. And the children in the video are all expressing the same sentiment. And they're using primarily the same statement or phrase to express that sentiment. Now, I'd like you to watch and listen, and listen closely, because at first it's kind of difficult to hear what they're saying, but I think you'll catch on. So check this video out with me, please. that video and I love watching your faces when you're watching the video. I love that last little boy. You're not the boss of me. And his mom asked him, who is the boss of you? You're not the boss of me. I'm the boss of me. That's a three, two, three-year-old little boy. I'm the boss of me. He's not just little kids either, is it? It's not just little kids. And that, you think about that flows really well, right? You're not the boss of me. It just kind of flows off our lips. You're not the boss of me. You know, that addresses one of the main questions in all of life. One of the main issues that all of us face. All of us. There's no exclusions. Not one of us in this room doesn't face the question, who is the boss? Who has authority in my life? Who has authority in your life? Who makes the decisions? Who is the boss? <laughs> yes, you're answered. I don't even have to finish the sermon. <laughs> yes, God is the boss. And we're going to look at that together this morning. So if you would, would you take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 11. We're continuing our study in the gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 11. We're going to begin at the end of the chapter, and we're going to continue into chapter 12. If you do not have a Bible, please grab one from the rack in front of you. Open it up. Turn to page 823. If you'll remember, last week we saw Jesus entering into the city of Jerusalem. And he entered into, the Jerusalem, into Jerusalem to the cheers of hundreds, maybe thousands of people, cheering him, clapping for him, excited that he's coming into Jerusalem. And they're proclaiming, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We celebrate it now as Palm Sunday. And the first thing that Jesus does, remember the first thing that he does when he gets into Jerusalem? He goes to the temple. And he goes to the temple to inspect what's happening at the temple. He goes to the temple looking for followers. He finds no followers in the temple. 
and he doesn't like what he sees when he gets there. But he decides not to do anything about it then. He decides to wait until the next day. The next day, that next day was a Monday morning. That next day, he's walking. He and his disciples are walking back towards the temple. And in the distance, Jesus sees a fig tree that has leaves on it. And he goes up to the fig tree, but when he gets there, he finds no fruit on the tree. Jesus is hungry. He wants breakfast. He wants to eat some figs, but there's no figs there. And so he gets a bit upset, and he curses the tree. Now, we said this is not Jesus being petty or ill-tempered. He's actually going to use this as a symbol. It's an illustration because he sees a tree, a fig tree with lots of leaves, but no figs. Lots of leaves, but no fruit. Jesus then continues, and he and his disciples go into the temple, and again, he's looking in the temple for some followers, but all he sees is a bunch of leaves, no fruit, just like the tree. And he gets upset because he sees people that are, that are taking advantage of the system. He sees people that are buying and selling at exorbitant markups. He sees money changers exchanging money at exorbitant rates, and he gets upset. Jesus gets angry, and he violently turns over the tables and begins to throw people out of the temple. Can you imagine? Jesus and his disciples walk into the temple. He's upset, he's angry, and he begins to turn tables over and throw people out of the temple. And not only that, Jesus stops the sacrifices in the temple. He stops the sacrifices. Mark says that Jesus kept people from moving anything across and through the temple. Jesus stops the sacrifices from happening. And he stops it all based on his own authority. And this is a big deal. The Levitical sacrificial system had been in place for over a thousand years. Moses had implemented this system for the people of Israel. It was central to the heart of the people of Israel. They were all about this worship of God through the sacrificial system. And Jesus not only comes into the temple and turns over the tables and throws people out, he stops the sacrifices on his own authority. I cannot explain to you, I do not think I can say it strongly enough how outrageous this act was that he did. He stops the sacrifices. This was outrageous. It was bold. It was daring. And Jesus, on his own authority, comes in and turns the tables and stops the sacrifices. Let's look at the response of the people. Mark chapter 11, page 823. The reaction that follows. Jesus now comes back into the temple the next morning. Look at Mark 11, verses 27 through 28. They arrived again in Jerusalem... And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you the authority 
to do this? Of course they ask these questions. These are the natural questions that should follow Jesus' actions. And you can sense the seriousness in their voices. What he did was a big deal. This is a serious matter. And these are the ultimate questions that these teachers, these, uh, these teachers, these elders, and these priests come to Jesus and ask, who told you that you could act like this? This is the ultimate question behind all human behavior. When you break down issue, when you come to the issue of authority, why do you act the way you act? Why do you speak the way you speak? How do you justify what you do? How do you justify what you say? Something or someone has to govern all of our decisions. Why do you do what you do? And why do you say what you say? When we deal with the question of authority, we are dealing with what is absolutely basic and foundational to all human behavior. And these are the right people to be asking the question. It says the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to Jesus. These groups had the standing authority in first century, central, first century Israel. The priests, they held religious authority, especially in regard to the temple and its sacrifices. The teachers held intellectual authority. They're interpreters of scripture and tradition. And the elders held social and political authority. All of the authority bases were covered. All of the authority bases were covered by these three groups of people. And they all benefited from and wanted to maintain the status quo. And Jesus is here upsetting the status quo. Look at what Jesus' response is, beginning in verse 29. It's quite remarkable. Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. I love this. Jesus quickly turns the table on these guys and he says, wait, I'm not gonna answer your question. You answer, you answer my question first. And if you answer my question, I'll answer your question. And he asks the perfect question about John the Baptist. The purpose of John the Baptist's ministry was to let people know that the Messiah was coming and he was to identify the Messiah. And he identifies Jesus as the Messiah and he's preparing the way for Jesus's ministry. So Jesus's question to these leaders therefore was, was John a prophet? Was John a man of God? Was his message from God? Because if John's message is from God, then you have the answer about my authority. Because John identified Jesus. The other option is that John is from men. Now notice here how Jesus simplifies the issue. He clears away all the clutter. And he makes the point that authority is either from God or it is from men. There is only two choices. Authority 
is from God or it is from men. I've now said that twice. And if you have not yet written it down, write it down. Authority is either from God or it is from men. There are no other authorities. We are either trying to please God and obey him or we are trying to please men. Now look at their answer. And it's clear that they know they're trapped. Beginning in verse 31. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Now it's crazy. They start this discussion thinking that they have Jesus trapped and quickly he turns the tables on them and they know that they're trapped. They lay it out. They say, if we say it was from God, Jesus is then going to respond, then why wouldn't you accept what John said? And if they say it's from men, they know that they are going to upset the crowd and they are going to have a big problem on their hands, so they punt. And they don't give Jesus an answer, so Jesus says, I'm not going to answer you either. In this exchange, Jesus reveals their hypocrisy and their dishonesty. These Jewish leaders were only concerned with preserving their power, their position, and their wealth. They were concerned about their own self-interest. And Jesus has enough. So now Jesus is going to expose them by telling a story that everyone can hear. He is going to expose them, and he is also going to predict their ultimate downfall. Look at the story. It begins in Mark chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. Now here, the priests, the teachers, and the elders would immediately know that Jesus is talking about them. They would immediately know that Jesus is talking about them because Jesus is almost quoting verbatim Isaiah chapter 5. He is using almost the exact words of Isaiah chapter 5 to start this parable. In Isaiah chapter 5, same things happen. God cleared the land, dug a pit, built a watchtower, planted the vines, and then came looking for fruit. The Jewish leaders know this is about them. Jesus then continues the story. Verse 2, at harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. 
So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. That's quite a story. That's a powerful story. And you're getting it, aren't you? You kind of pick up what, what Jesus is saying to these people. But let's make clear, let's make it clear and make it sure that we know the owner, owner and the planter of the vineyard is God himself. The vineyard is the nation of Israel. The farmers are the leadership of the Israeli people. The servants, the ones who are sent time and time again, generation after generation, these servants who are beaten, who are humiliated, who are killed, these servants are the prophets, the judges, and the kings who throughout Israel's history spoke truth, spoke the truth of God to the people of Israel, and time and time again were rejected and were killed. And then finally, the son the one whom he loved, the one sent at the end, is Jesus himself. Jesus is definitely taking it to these people. This is an incredibly bold and daring story to tell. These are the leaders of Israel. These are the ones who supposedly have all the authority and although the story is somewhat veiled, it's clear that the, he is describing them. He is describing them and who they are and how they have acted and how they are going to act in the future. And look at in the story, he also answers the question, by what authority are you doing these things? Through the story, he says to them, I'll tell you by whose authority I'm doing these things. I'm the landowner. I own the vineyard. I'm the son. I am the heir. This is rightfully mine. He is telling them through the story that he is the son whom the father loved, whom the landowner loved and sent to provide rescue and salvation. And Jesus told these men exactly what they were going to do. They would beat him, kill him, and cast him out of the vineyard. Jesus knows exactly what is going to happen to him. But then he goes on to explain what will ultimately happen to them. Because God has the final say. Look at verse 9. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Here in Mark's account, it looks as if Jesus answers his own question. But in the account of Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, we get a little bit more detail of what happens. And in Matthew's gospel, the priests the teachers and the elders actually respond to Jesus' question. Look what they say. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. In Mark, Jesus is affirming what the teachers and priests and elders have said. And then look how Jesus finishes, beginning in verse 10. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? 
The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Jesus makes it clear to all who were listening that these priests, teachers, and elders were not the ultimate or final authority, and they will not get away with all they have done and all they are doing. God has a plan, and what he said would happen has actually happened. The father sent his son whom he loved, and they killed him. But that was not the end of the story. They killed him, but three days later, Jesus, according to God's plan, was raised from the dead. And when Jesus was raised from the dead to life eternal, to be seated at the right hand of God the Father, he, Jesus, was given all power and authority on heaven and on earth. Jesus has all power and authority. Not the priests, not the teachers, not the elders. Jesus has all power and authority. And by the way, 40 years later, Rome had enough. And Rome sent their soldiers into the city of Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple and much of the city. And they took the priests, the teachers, and the elders and chained them and brought them out of the city into captivity for the rest of their lives. Jesus has all power and authority in heaven and on earth. Now this is more than just a good story about something that happened a couple thousand years ago. And it's more than just a history lesson. There are applications for our life. How does this story and the fact that Jesus has all power and authority fit in our lives today. I have three applications for us this morning. Three applications that I'd like you to consider and write down for how Jesus' authority matters in your life and in my life. First, let's step back from the story itself and let's step back to the beginning of the sermon where I asked you, who's the boss? Who is the boss? Who has authority in your life? Who makes the decisions in your life? Who makes the decisions in my life? I played the video, and we have these little kids on the video speaking and saying, you're not the boss of me. You're not the boss of me. And the one little boy at the end saying, I'm the boss of me. And we laugh at the video. We laugh at the video because it's funny. We also laugh at the video because there's not one of us in this room that hasn't thought exactly the same thing at one point in our life or another. You're not the boss of me. I'm the boss of me. Each one of us has thought that at one time or another in our lives. And some of us have even said that to other people. You're not the boss of me. Well, who is the boss? Last week, 
I asked you to ask yourselves, are you a follower of Jesus or are you just a fan? Because there's a big difference between a follower of Jesus and a fan. And one of the biggest differences between a follower of Jesus and a fan is our first application for this morning. A follower of Jesus accepts and submits to the authority of Jesus. A follower of Jesus accepts and submits to the authority of Jesus. Who is the boss? Jesus is the boss. That's the easy answer, people. It's the Sunday school answer. Who is the boss? Jesus is the boss. Who makes the decisions for me in my life? Jesus. Who makes the decisions for you in your life? Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus is the boss, and he's the one that should be making the decisions in your life. The priests, the teachers, the elders, they felt that they were the ultimate authority. They were the ones that were making the decision for Israel and for the people of Israel. And so that's why they get so upset when Jesus comes into the temple, cleans it out, and stops the sacrifice. Who is this guy? Who is this Jesus guy? And you know what? It's not that much different today. There are people running around saying, who is this Jesus guy? The answer is, if you're a follower of Jesus, he is the authority in your life. Followers of Jesus accept and submit to the authority of Jesus. I don't make the decisions for me. You don't make the decisions for you. Jesus makes our decisions. Jesus is the authority in our lives. Jesus is the boss. Second, God is still good and gracious. God is still good and gracious. Now, you read this story, and you read it from kind of a surface perspective, and it's kind of a scary story. You have a landowner that sends a servant to collect the rent, to collect the fruit, and these servants go to collect fruit, and and they're beaten. They're humiliated. They're even killed. And not only are the servants beaten, humiliated, and killed, the landowner then sends his own son, and his son is beaten and killed and thrown outside the vineyard. And then the landowner, he's had enough. So the landowner goes to seek justice and he kills all the tenant farmers. That's kind of a scary story. That's a lot of killing. But that's from a surface perspective. Because really at the core of this story is a message about the goodness and the graciousness of God. Because think about what the landowner, what God actually did. Time and time again, God sent servant after servant after servant to collect the rent, to inform, to encourage, to save the tenant farmers. And time and time again, those farmers rejected the messenger, the servant of the landowner. And finally, the landowner cares so much, God cares so much, that he sent his son, whom he loved, to provide that encouragement, that rescue, and that salvation. And they reject and kill him. 
God is still good and God is still gracious because he continually offers rescue and salvation. And look, it's not only the parable that tells us that God is good and gracious. It's in the telling of the parable. It's in the telling of the parable that we see God's goodness and graciousness. Follow me with this for a minute. When Jesus tells the parable, he is actually still alive. They have not killed him yet. He knows what's coming. He knows these people that he, are t- he is talking to in a few days are going to hang him on a cross and kill him. Yet Jesus still comes to them and tells this story of a landowner who's going to send his son to provide rescue and salvation. God is continually expressing his goodness and his graciousness. You would think that there would be at least one of these people that would listen and hear and think, oh my goodness, this is about me. I need to repent and follow Jesus. God is good and gracious in sending his son. And he's giving them a warning about what's to happen and saying, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of like Charles Dickens, a Christmas carol. Remember Charles Dickens? Remember the Chris, a Christmas carol? The main character, Ebenezer Scrooge. And Ebenezer Scrooge isn't a very nice man and he hasn't lived a very generous or caring or giving life. So, so there are three ghosts that visit Ebenezer Scrooge. The ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas future. And remember when the ghost of Christmas future comes to Ebenezer Scrooge? What does he do? He takes him into the future. He takes them into the future to see what's going to happen. He takes them into the future to see what will happen if he doesn't change how he is in the present. The ghost of Christmas future gives Scrooge a chance to change. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing through this parable. Because God is good and gracious, he is giving these people the opportunity to see their future and to change. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, or maybe you're just a fan, this whole thing here, is not just me getting up and telling you a story and giving you three valuable life applications. This is God being good and gracious to you. He's giving you a glimpse of the future. He's giving you an offering and he's saying to you, you have the opportunity to live under the authority of Jesus. You have the opportunity to have your sins forgiven, to live under Jesus' authority, and to experience life. It's just like Scrooge. You have the opportunity to receive what he is offering you this morning. His goodness and his graciousness through Jesus. If you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus... I want to remind you ever so strongly that he is good and gracious. He is good and gracious to you. I think too many times we focus on the hardships of life, the trials of life, the difficulties of life, and we don't, we don't give God enough gratitude for all the goodness and graciousness in our lives. God has been good to you. 
He has provided for you. He has provided food. He's provided a roof over your head. He's provided family, mother, father, brother, sister. If you're married and you're sitting next to a spouse, he has provided the man or the woman of your dreams, maybe a son, maybe a daughter. He has provided so many good things to you because he is gracious. He wants the best for you. And unless you think this is a prosperity gospel kind of message, think about even in the difficult times of your life when your health hasn't been so good. Didn't he bring that friend alongside of you to pray with you? Maybe a family to provide meals for your family? Maybe just someone to come next to your bedside and hold your hand. Or maybe you're here and you're like, Tom, my dad isn't such a good dad. My mom wasn't such a good mom and I don't even like my brothers and my sisters. And you'd say, my family is just broken. Hasn't God provided you with this church family to wrap its arms around you and tell you that you are special, that God loves you and he cares for you? God is still good and gracious. First, followers of Jesus accept and submit to Jesus' authority in their lives. Second, God is still good and gracious. And third, Jesus is still looking for fruit. Jesus is still looking for fruit. The landowner, God, sent his servants into the vineyard to collect the fruit. The landowner, God, sent his son into the vineyard to collect fruit. Jesus is still in the business of collecting fruit today. And this ties into our first application. If Jesus is the authority in our lives, if he is the authority in our lives, which means he is the boss of our lives, which means he makes the decisions for us, one of the things he has decided for us is that we are to produce fruit in our lives. This is where the concept of the cornerstone comes in. Verse 10 says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone. The cornerstone is the first stone that is laid down in the building of a building. It is the foundational stone that every other stone is built off of. It is the stone that makes a building square and plumb. It is the stone that every other stone is in line with. Jesus is our cornerstone. And when he is the cornerstone of your life, everything else falls in line with that cornerstone. And as a result, we produce fruit. We produce fruit as followers of Jesus. And we do it because Jesus is looking for fruit. You know one of the reasons I love this church? There's a number of reasons I love this church. You want to know one of the reasons I love this church? It's because this church produces fruit. This church produces fruit. I drive in this morning. I get here kind of early on a Sunday morning. I drive in, and as I drive in, there are people out in the parking lot setting up cones. 
They're setting up cones in that parking lot to make sure that none of us bump our cars into somebody else's car. That is fruit. Those people are there producing fruit. I come here early, and when I get here early, there are people here in this sanctuary who are practicing. There are some people sitting in the seats already, meditating or praying for these services. You heard Cindy mention in her prayer that there are people in various rooms throughout this building right now praying for this service, praying for you. That is fruit. If you go out this back door and you go down those stairs, there are people down those stairs that are telling Bible stories to your children and changing their diapers. That is producing fruit. That is stinky fruit, but it is fruit nonetheless. They are producing fruit. There are teachers in the hallway down here who are teaching Bible lessons to other members of this congregation, other parts of this family. That is fruit. There are people right now who are counseling people with their financial needs here in this building this morning. That is fruit. And that's just what happens here on a Sunday morning. That's not what happens here throughout the week or what happens in your homes, in your lives, in your neighborhood. This place, this church is made up of people, you people, who are producing fruit. Some of you are here this morning and you've brought a neighbor or a friend to hear about Jesus for the first time. They can't quite figure this thing out yet, but they'll get there. That's fruit. I love this place. And I love you. Because you teach me what it looks like to produce fruit. Don't stop. And look at this building. Look at Grace Beyond. It's fruit. You look at this structure, and just let's start with the structure. This structure was built because you prayed, and you sacrificed, and you gave to this structure. And just with the structure itself, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, long past the time when I will be here or you will be here, Lord willing, there will be people here that are proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Why? Because of the fruit. Because of your willingness to commit to something greater and bigger than yourselves. And it's not just the building, it's what the building has done in our hearts and our lives in transforming us, in making us more like Jesus because you see, sacrifice for Jesus always makes us more like Jesus. And it has caused us to become more devoted, more committed, more passionate followers of Jesus Christ. When you walk in this building, recognize that it is fruit and it is something that has changed us to our core. to be devoted, passionate, and committed followers of Jesus. Jesus is still looking for fruit. And as a parenthetical aside, he's looking for fruit. He's not looking for weeds. So cut out the pride, cut out the selfishness, cut out the gossip, cut out the sexual immorality in your life, and focus on producing fruit. Jesus has all power and authority in heaven and on earth. Followers of Jesus accept and submit to Jesus' authority, recognize that God is still good and gracious, and are in the business of producing fruit.
I know. I know it's difficult. And I know a lot of times we live our lives thinking, you're not the boss of me. But I promise you, and you know this, when you live your life with that sentiment at your core, life doesn't go very well. When you live your life with Jesus as your final authority, life goes well. In the hard times and in the good times. Jesus has all power and authority in heaven and on earth.